Hey friends, it's Maya, back with a new episode and new season of the Gaysian Podcast, podcast where we are exploring the queer Asian experience through conversations with some truly amazing people. Uh, fun update, we are now releasing bi-weekly on Tuesdays, so set your alerts for those new episode drops every two weeks. Um, I am so, so excited for you all to hear the conversations we have coming up this season, including today's. Uh, we have Matt Katai, this wonderful human being who is a New York-based actor and writer, um, and we get to talk about his experiences as a queer mixed Asian American, as well as representation, uh, diversification in mainstream media, and focusing on marginalized communities and queer history and, you know, talking about what it means to get this representation, like, you know, how important it is for doors to be opened for us and, and for us to also be slamming our fists on the doors or even just making our own doors. Um, I'm so excited for you all to meet Matt. He is a delight. Um, and yeah, it's just a really fun episode. So glad that it's releasing. So glad that we're back. Uh, stay tuned for a ton of cool stuff uh, releasing on the Gaysian Project this fall. We got some new merch coming up. Um, and like I said, this whole season of the Gaysian Podcast is truly going to rock your world. I say that because there have been a lot of episodes where I have fully just needed like so much time to process after I talked with these people. I was like, wow, you literally just changed my world. I love this community. Anyways, before I start rambling for way too long, let's just dive in. Without further ado, this is The Gaysian Podcast with Matt Katai. Thanks for Hi. doing this. Um, so before we get started, um, just so that everybody gets to know you a little bit better, um, could you introduce yourself and just like, you know, give us the yeah, short, I'll do I'll do a short, short little little thing. A little, <laughs> little bio. Um, okay, so my name is Matt Kitai. Um, uh, so I'll do like the original original bio. So I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I know. Fun fact. And Home of Breaking Bad, I've not really watched the full TV show. Um, I listen, <laughs> they have a car wash in it, and the car wash is, it's a functioning car wash. Uh -huh. And I go get my car wash there when I'm home, and they have like a Breaking Bad tour there. Anyway, I <laughs> um, grew up there. My mom's Japanese. I'm gay. And uh, my mom's Japanese. And... 
where was I going with this? And anyway, so like there's not a lot of Asian people in Albuquerque. Um, and my dad's white and Jewish. Um, so like a typical combo actually. And then I went to school in Boston for undergrad. I went to BU um, where I was an acting major in their conservatory program. And then I lived in New York a little bit after that and acted. And then I went to grad school at Brown and also went to their acting program because I decided I wanted more school. And then I lived in LA for a year and now I'm back in New York and I'm an actor and writer professionally among other things. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, <laughs> I, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to somebody and I was like, I, it's such like a coastal like kid thing to not know what any part of the middle of the United States is. Cause I'm, I'm born uh-huh. and raised in California and I'm like, okay, I know the West coast. And then like, I know Texas is somewhere like down here, Florida. Yeah. And then the east coast like vaguely understand what's happening but have no idea what's happening in the middle of the country and i was talking to somebody i was like wait i always forget that new mexico exists right because it's in between right. arizona and it's also a Texas. very small state it's a really interesting state i'm actually glad that i grew up there um economically it's a very interesting state and then culturally it's also interesting in that um it is it is incredibly diverse i mean you also get a lot of like Bible Belt Southern, so you're gonna get a lot of like conservatism and um, various other things. But overall, it's like a nice community to grow, grow up in. That's really cool, and it's also like in terms of diversity. Like I think that's really interesting because my perception of New Mexico is, oh, it's Southern-ish. It's a border town, so of course, mm-hmm. right now I'm gonna be like my instant kind of idea of it is to compare it to like Arizona, which is very, very it's white. Similar. It, it's similar. It is um, less, I actually don't have the, the ethnic breakdown. It is less white. Um, I will say this is that be, being mixed race Asian, I often present as Latinx. And so growing up there, um, discrimination, like largely you don't really, if, People knew I was Asian, you could get some discrimination that way, but largely it's um, a large Latinx population. So you sort of grow up in this community that is like white isn't this dominating majority. Yeah. Um, And that's sort of what's cool about it. It is interesting going back right now, especially in the political times that we're in, because people are on edge about ICE. I think the undocumented immigrant population is very high in Albuquerque. Um, And so it's one, it is one of the states that has been very um, anti-wall and then also very, you know, protective of undocumented immigrants' rights. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's what's interesting yeah. about it, yeah. I, I totally understand what you're talking about when you say, like, um, you sometimes present as, like, Latinx, and that happens to yeah. me, like, all the time in California, um, where there, I mean, like, there's such a huge, like, Latinx population, if not primarily Mexican, right? Um, and then just like being a brown Asian, um, right. <laughs> like one that doesn't have, you know, more of like, you know, the features an Indian person is supposed to have, whatever that means. Right. Right. Um, yeah. It's like you get lumped in with um, just the other brown people, which is such an interesting 
experience um, in terms of, I, it was a very interesting experience in the terms of, uh, you know, kind of coming to terms with my identity and understanding what my Asian-ness was, what my yeah, brownness and like, did you was. Coach, did you coach shift a lot, do you find? I don't know. I do find that I like try to play up my Asian-ness a lot. Like uh -huh. I will walk around, despite the like actual decades of Spanish that I have taken through school in California, I basically know nothing. So every time somebody mistakes me as being Latinx and will start talking to me in Spanish, I just like, it's this weird thing where I'm like, no, 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 don't be disappointed in me for not knowing Spanish. I'm not. Oh, yeah, no, like, I actually have such right? a, I feel that way too. That happens yeah. a lot. Like when I don't work in, um, uh, knock on wood, but I haven't had to work in the service industry um, I anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. Knock on wood. Because uh, I was terrible at it and it was soul crushing. But I notice oftentimes um, when people would speak Spanish to me, uh, they would be so disappointed that I couldn't respond back. Yeah. That I was like, that I was of like um, of a younger generation who decided not to speak Spanish at home. Yeah, I was like, no, 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 no. no. It's, it's, it's. Uh, I'm, I just don't speak Spanish. I'm not Spanish. I, I don't. I'm not Latinx. I, I just don't speak Spanish. I'm so sorry, but it, I just couldn't communicate it well. Yeah, and I always yeah. thought that like that experience is so interesting because so for me, my parents didn't teach me any of like the billion languages that they speak three languages, um, but they didn't teach me any of our like native tongues growing up. Uh -huh. so, um, so that was like weird because when I was put in that situation where somebody mistook me uh, for something that I'm not, um, yeah. I didn't have something to fall back on to very clearly be like, no, this is my idea, you know, like this is who I yeah. am. Um, and, and that was like a very, confusing thing to deal with growing up and did I was you find it frustrating to be confused as something else um not until I got to college I think I like uh -huh. skated by on just really digging into you know the model minority assumption and like playing yeah. like my exoticness uh whatever that means uh and then when I got to college uh where I was surrounded by so many other, you know, like Indian folks and just like a ton of different people uh, who had way different backgrounds than I did. Then I was just like, oh, you all have, not all of them, but like there were a lot of people that had such pride in their identities that I didn't have and like a connection to it that I didn't have. It seems singular for them in a way. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't know what I am. Um, and, and I was just wondering, like, for you, like, did uh -huh. any of that like weird, um, you know, like being mistaken as something that you're not or just like kind of waffling in a weird, like ethnically ambiguous uh, state impact your like identity formation? Oh, a hundred percent. And I think, I mean, I'm still dealing with it, but I think a hundred percent, I think, I mean, for better, or for worse, and I'm ashamed of it, but I think I used to get upset and still sometimes do when people assume that I'm a different uh, ethnicity, not just because I find it, I'm trying to not find it offensive, but I find it, I used to find it offensive and angering because 
I think I misinterpreted interpreted it as a rejection of like you're not seeing who I really am in a weird yeah. way. Yeah. And rather than in what it really is, is like, oh, it's an inclusive thing. It's like, oh, you're part of our community or you're part of this community. Um, oh, I so never really thought of it in that way. Because I, I always yeah. felt that same, like that anger, like, why aren't you seeing me for who I am? Right. And it, and then, then there's also the case of this happens a lot, too, is, you know, the racism. Yeah. <laughs> Someone thinks you're a different race and the racism you experience from that, too. And it's this weird thing of, especially being in the entertainment industry, um, I really try not to play, I have a whole, we can get into that later about my navigation through the types of roles that I will and will yeah. not play um, based on race. But it's interesting, especially being discriminated against that is based on race for a race that isn't your own. Yeah. Um, and there's something in a weird way of feeling kinship to other um, minority and racial groups because of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, in that like, you know, uh, I am not Middle Eastern, but you know, I've experienced that discrimination. I'm not Latinx, but I certainly experienced that on a like, not day-to-day basis, but quite a bit sometimes in the city um you know people telling me to like go back to the country i'm from when they're assuming that it's mexico so yeah so it's it's interesting and i mean and i used to bother me and now i'm sort of just embracing it because it's such a unique experience and i think that if everyone i think that the way the country and the world's working is it's going to be a more mixed race diverse kind of world and it does make you see things from a non from a different point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's such an important point because I feel like so often we splinter ourselves out based on, you know, it's like my experience is so different from yours, um, which totally is true in some cases. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, as pe- people of color, there is a lot of similarity, you know, like kids of immigrants, um, you know, f- immigrant families, like there, there's so many similarities between the way that we are experiencing the United States. Cause in a lot of senses, we are third culture kids, right? Like right. we aren't really what our parent, you know, part of our parents' culture. We also in some ways aren't fully like quote unquote, American culture, whatever that is, but we're also like creating this like mix and like in living in this space where, you know, there, (laughs) there's no guidelines. Like there have been very few people, very few like people who have been visible, who have like had these experiences before us. Um, And, and so when we're able to kind of connect with that, with, you know, um, maybe somebody from Venezuela, you know, who probably doesn't have like the same you know, experiences as being Asian American, but still can understand the like third culture aspect of it all. Right, and the immigrant, I think that what you said there, like the immigrant experience, I mean, that's such, it's been the child of an immigrant experience. Yeah, right? It's such a unique, and I mean, my mom is very much American, but she, she wasn't born here. Um, My mom's the same way. she's a citizen, but um, she, she moved here when she was very little. But it, but she, her parents were immigrants. Yeah. Um, well, sort of. My grandfather was like a dual citizen, I think. He, 
was Japanese. I'm not actually sure the whole story. He grew up very poor in Hawaii, but okay. was a Japanese citizen. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but anyway, um, but she very much has the immigrant mentality. My mom, which, um, yeah. both my parents immigrated like in the 80s, I think. Um, but my mom's side of the family huge anglophiles because love that internalized colonialism in india um uh, yeah but yeah, yeah, you know, yeah very very western my like uh my my grandfather and then his father i think were educated in england um at some okay. point um and so all of that kind of like fed into this like westernizing of my mom where like so often I forget that she's an immigrant she's like an immigrant who came here and hasn't lived here her entire life yet has so many of these like western and like Amer you know like this really really open mind and it's been like a really cool environment to be to grow up in um where uh -huh. like, almost my mom is like experiencing the third culture aspect of it minus any of the experiences that come along with like dating or going to high school right. in the United States or things like that. And it, it's really, really fascinating because my, my dad is the one who's, um, you know, a little bit, you know, more Indian, I guess. Uh, and trying to explain things to him um, is always interesting, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to say the least. But yeah, yeah. That, that, that kind of immigrants thing, it's, it's weird because like I'm so grateful for it and also right now the only way that I can describe the experience for myself uh, as being the kid of immigrant is just full with like a lot of guilt of like trying to you know make my parents sacrifice worth it and like uh, yeah better I guess. Oh I didn't um, really yeah I didn't think of that I mean because I didn't experience that so that's yeah. Wow, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I think that's where a lot of the, you know, high achieving pressure certainly probably comes from, from Im children of immigrants, is to make, you know, the sacrifice worth it. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is real good for all of our mental health. <laughs> um, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, what was it, it like growing up in? you know, a mixed race household. Um, I feel like, you know, I don't know if your father was like very like connected to his Jewishness, but I, with my interactions with my Jewish uh -huh. friends, I've always felt like there's such a similarity between my experience as an Asian American and some oh, of yeah. the experiences as being Jewish. That kind of like oh, ethno-religious, yeah. like cultural, familial kind of aspect to it. It's, certainly really interesting it was um yeah it was like they were sort of both equal in my life like my dad is very jewish and very practicing um he's also just like racially it's what to know is that he presents very Aryan. he like has blue eyes and had blonde hair and the sort of why I look the way I look, it's because my mom was from sort of Southern Japan. So it's like the combo of the two creates sort of this ethnically unidentifiable human. Um, and so I grew up with them and it was interesting because I think that when my grandma was alive, she lived with us a lot. And 
Um, oh no, can you hear the email when it comes in? No, I did not hear the email. Okay. Well, this is now on the podcast, everybody. Uh, I'm worried about he's extra got mail. Sound. <laughs> yeah, I'm also worried about extra sound. There was a dog barking, and I'm in an office building earlier, and I was like, oh no, that's not there. Anyway, because <laughs> um, we're live humans, everyone. Uh, so, long story short, is where was I going with this? Yeah, so my grand when my grandma was alive, um, Asian culture was like super present in the household, and I found it very embarrassing at times. Um, just because she she like didn't wear hearing aids, she's very loud and um and you know uh our house would smell like fish cakes or would smell like fish oil or and and then we'd also have the Jewish side where like no one in Albuquerque is Jewish. There's very few synagogues. And so it was like being this two combo of like two things that aren't really present in Albuquerque. Like I had one there were like probably in my high school, in my class, like probably three Asian people. And we were like all kind of friends, except for one. We like didn't talk to one of them, but like we like <laughs> had a club of Asian people and none of us were the same Asian, but it was like, well, you know, there's few of us. So it must stick together. <laughs> yeah. And I used to be, then I was a period of being very proud of being Asian and it was interesting in the household because I don't think we talked about, like we'd go to Japan and it was just never really talked about the idea of mixed race because I think my parents both just saw like, you know, my dad never saw any race things because he saw us as his kids. So he didn't really see that we looked different than he did. Um, and so to him, under feeling like someone would be racist towards us was shocking because, you know, why they're my, like they're, he doesn't see it in the sense that, you know, when people say they don't see race, I think, if they're your child you and you're the white parent you really just see your kid yeah for sure and so um and so then I think I went through a period of like not wanting to be Asian I think that especially like as I was getting older and it goes into the whole stereotype of like I presented it as other things and this desexualization and fetishization of like gay Asian men really bothered me and so I sort of don't, I didn't disclose that around because I passed as something else and was desirable in a different way. And I felt that by, you know, talking about my Asian-ness uh, made me less desirable. And so there's this sort of weird messed up self-loathing there. And it's sort of gone back around now. I don't care um, as I've gotten older. So that, but in the household wise, I think that's sort of, my influence of like mixed raceness really sort of stemmed from beyond the household because we didn't really it wasn't like it just sort of was what it was it wasn't yeah, yeah. that's wild being I mean it's always wild being a minority in any community but to be two and I mean like two ethnic minorities right um yeah. and then to also be queer it like yeah is so much like weird pressure and like you know where do you fit like what you know like that that intersection of all those identities it's like ah uh, how how do I find you know like where am I in this space and like right yeah it's you talking about like the desexualization of Asian men like is is so so interesting to me because the way that we are interacting with um you know asian masculinity and asian femininity femininity is so like on polar opposites because you have like this 
constant attack on desexualizing Asian masculinity, and then this like gross fetishization of Asian right. women. And right. it's like in either way that you know masculinity and femininity are just objects at the end of the day it's just like an object to be controlled and to be able to have to navigate that like is i can imagine and i well i think that's why representation is so important yeah of course you know? and i think and i i i think in entertainment what i find important and what i like to focus on is uh, um presenting Asian stories or stories of really any marginalized community and also I think women's stories I think there's just not enough um women's stories or you trans stories where the subjugated being is not living in like the subjugated world like a world where like they everything's against them and they're like it's sad like there's two movies about a subjugated person being sad and not working out in the end and dying right and I think that what I really think is the most amazing thing is what it what if there is a what where are the stories where there is a queer Asian man where he's a desirable being and not just desirable because like we're trying to we need to make him desirable but we're like if we had those images earlier in this desexualization and fetishization of Asian women, if we present these these multifaceted images earlier, those wouldn't those tropes wouldn't exist. Absolutely. Those stories don't exist. And I think even in the Asian community that's in the industry right now, it's a handful of people, especially like... One very specific, like it's one very specific image of what Asian-ness is or what queer Asian-ness is. Yeah. And even the, I can list, and I don't personally know them. I know, like, it's weird because like tangentially, like, have friends who know them but I've never met them they probably have no idea who I am because also we do different things in different careers but there's like a few there's like two gay Asian men who are young who are like in comedy and tv there's like and there's like one who's sort of an actor and on tv who went to this grad school that I know of him from and then you know, there's a few of us who are like actors and writers who just like are fresh out of training. And it's it's a really small community and the visibility, we're all different people, but it's sort of like, I don't know where I'm going with this. What I'm going with this is that there's not a diversity in the representation. There's a lot of tokenism happening. Yeah. And I think that's where the decentralization and fetishization comes in for both, for, for both ways. I think that the I know that we talk about how it's a great time for diversity in Hollywood or but it's not really because also once you find one person of one that fits into this category they're the person that they're using and it's just not presenting enough images to change the population's mind and represent the world that we actually live in totally it's like that whole thing where like uh crazy rich Asians wildly successful I loved it glad it was successful but and the flip side of that is all of a sudden Hollywood is like, oh shit, like, wow, there's an audience that will watch Asian, sh- Asian stories. Right. Also no shit. Um, but let, how do we replicate crazy rich Asians? And it's like, right. don't, you know, like it, it's a, it's a mad rush to replicate the thing that was really successful instead of looking at why was this thing successful and right. like, 
what different, you know, like what is at the core of that? Like, we don't need to replicate that same mold, um, but how can we tell that story? Like, you know, maybe with an Iranian fan, like crazy rich Iranians or something. Right. right, or, and then also understanding that there's talent beyond those people, you know? Exactly, yeah. And I think like Hollywood is, like I'm very glad that Aquafina is having this career and, but there's, there's so many Asian actor, Asian actresses and writers that I know who are wildly brilliant and yeah. talented and would provide another viewpoint that she's not. And I think that she's presenting this thing and it's wonderful, but I'm saying that we need more different versions yeah. of that. No, and, absolutely. And like Sandra Oh, I mean, I love Sandra Oh. I like part of my running joke is like campaigning for her to win an Emmy, but, um, she was really the first Asian actress who I felt really like broke barriers and really. She just, yeah, the like, I totally agree. Like, I don't know how to describe Sandra Oh or my love of Sandra Oh, but every time I watch her, it's like, you're, you're such a true actor in that you are able to do you know, like play all of these roles, you are given, you're given these opportunities to play these roles that are not dependent on your ethnicity or like some shtick that you have. Like you, she can go yeah. from like, you know, playing the vice principal in uh, vice principal Gupta in The Princess right. Diary, right? To being a woman in like a vineyard norm core, like prestige movie to like yeah. a special agent, right, in, in Killing Eve. And that, that kind of like breadth of representation where it's like, yes, it's an Asian woman, but like none of these roles are about, are focusing on her Asian-ness right. in a tokenizing way. And I know? think it took her a long time to get there. Like Absolutely. I think Christina Yang and Grace Anatomy, as I recall, was not, not wasn't Christina Yang. So it became Christina Yang when she uh, got the part. And same with, she'll tell the story. I mean, obviously I am a fan. I mean, it's half a joke, half a <laughs> You're a standard. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she read the part of Eve. And I mean, it's Eve Philostry. It's not like, it, it reads on the page as like white woman. Yeah. And they just, they decided, you know, why couldn't it be her? And I think that that's really what I'm going for. Like, that's really the idealized, like, version of representation that what I long to see growing up. Like, I hate the idea that I don't disclose that I'm Asian when I'm, like, dating men. Like, I think that's a terrible thing. And I think that would help change by representation too. And, and, and I think by doing it the way that Sandra O's oh career has had this trajectory is a really good way to do that. And it just takes a lot of work. And I mean, I praise the, the few, the few, and there's, there's like a handful of like Asian industry people who are working so hard to make that happen. So yeah. And like little things like this, like like you're the you starting the gay Asian project is like that's one step to you know changing the narrative. Yeah, and just and like showing like right. a breadth of experiences, right? Because like we're not a monolith. And I think like something that's so interesting about like the prevailing discourse in 
you know, Asian circles or about Asianness is that it's so centered on Eastern Asian folks or people who like pass as Eastern Asian. And there's this weird pressure um, or assumption that if you don't look that way or you don't present in that way, then you're not fully Asian. And that's such a disservice to, you know, like the Central and the West Asians, and then also like mixed race Asians, right? And Pacific Islanders and indigenous folks, right? Because, you know, those stories and those experiences are just as Asian as, you know, any other experience. Um, And yet, because of that discourse focusing on Eastern Asian folks, there's this pressure. I, I mean, like I've personally felt it that I am not Asian enough to be Asian. And yeah, and you yeah. don't have like enough, like you're saying, like representation feeds into that because you don't, you only see one very specific um, image of what an Asian person is. Uh, and, you know, I think, I don't know if you watch Pen15 on Hulu. I haven't yet. It's so good. I heard, um, I mean, I heard it's the most. I've been working my way through while well, I'm working. I've been watching the other two. So that's like the comedy I'm on oh, right now, which is great because it has Daniel K. Isaac yeah. in it. And he's, well, I haven't seen the most recent episode, but it feels like they're setting him up to be like the, um, like male, the, the, there's a gay brother in it and the gay brother, but uh, he's like the love interest. And that's mm-hmm. really great to see. And that's sort of like, we're getting there. But anyway, yeah. you're saying pen, pen, pen one, Pen one five. Pen one five. Yeah, no, I was gonna say that was like the first time that I had seen, you know, a mixed race Asian character, like uh-huh. lead character, um, that had storylines that just so fully embraced like her family and who she is without this like, oh my god, like her Asian mother married a white guy and like making like a huge deal out of that, of that. Or like, you know trying to play up some kind of weird tragedy or like you know weird tokenizing aspect of it it was just like this is who she is and you know it didn't diminish her asianness it didn't diminish her like experiences with her dad um and i was watching that and i was like this is awesome it's unfortunate that it's like on hulu so very you know, not as many people will be seeing it, and the people it's sort of a niche it. thing, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very niche. Um, but like, I always think about that because you know we don't see a lot of images of different types of Asians or different types of like families, Asian families, um, yeah. if they aren't like played for some kind of tragedy or like a tokenizing guilt trip, um, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I like, I don't know how that changes outside of like, you know, more people like Maya Erskine who did Pen15 um, or like people like you or any of the other like creatives, creative Asians in the industry. Like yeah. just being like, yeah. fucking pay us, like let us make you shit. It's good. That's the thing is it, it's sort of like, it's sort of, it, and this is, moving back to New York and I felt like I lost some steam from grad school it's sort of like convincing people to let me into the room Mm -hmm. to start to create these things you know whereas they're the the, what they're looking for is the already like Hollywood's looking for the product that's already selling you know yeah 
and I think to get the diverse stories and I mean any any minority in the business would say that like you just have to fight to get into that room and then yeah. prove this thing and then they'll start to make those stories rather than people just taking risks and yeah but Hollywood does not like to take risks unless yeah. it's like showing Michael Fassbender's dick that's the right risk. it's got to be about money and the stupid thing is is that you know films helmed by women about women make more money than films helmed by men about men yeah. so like the number game is there um it's just about convincing people to take that chance and that just takes time and work and and it's just the way it is i used to be upset yeah. about it but it's just the way it is it's you just have to yeah. work hard. it's like one of those things where yeah it's like this really irritating institution with all these like staid assumptions and practices and like to change that you have to like just keep railing against the system and you know like yeah like you're saying like keep working hard and keep having conversations like this too because I think the more conversations we continue to have about representation and like you know, William Yu tweeting out every single day, representation matters today. Like, yeah. I think the more we keep talking about it and, and keep emphasizing that this is something that's so, so important and that like, you know, this isn't, this isn't, and this never was a society that was like, you know, fully made up 100% of straight white men. Um, and your viewership is is so different and so wide. And why can't, a story about you know like a Bangladeshi like teenage girl be right. as universally kind of um, resonant as I don't know like uh, Dear Evan Hansen. I right. Don't know <laughs> right. Like you know. Oh, I, I know what you mean. It's that. It's that. Like I often wonder. Like why did this thing have to go white? And because at the end of the day what i want to see is i i'm more interested in seeing stories about women and then stories about people of color and then queer stories like i just find that there's something interesting about it and that's what i'm interested in yeah it's just an easy little fix and i'm not i think the other thing is it's just like straight white men feel like we're coming for them and it's like no i think there's room at the table for everybody yeah there absolutely is and i think i think the other thing is that straight white men just don't realize that there's never been room at the table for us mm -hmm. so like you giving us like a corner chair where you still you just have to scoot over a little bit it just feels very imposing but it's like you're still sitting at the table yeah absolutely what has your experience been like like working um as an actor as uh as a writer within the industry because uh -huh. my my only experiences uh working in the industry has been like on the production side so i was one of the assistants like dealing with agents which is wildly uh -huh. different than being you know in situations where you are you know dealing with your ethnicity for roles or like creating uh -huh. the representation you want to see um it's been to be honest it's it's been a it's been a trip it's also been interesting because i mean there are two different i i've sort of i used to hate the system and now i'm sort of just like you know it is, it is what it is mm -hmm. and i think i don't know okay i'm trying to like condense my thoughts a little bit so i mean i haven't been funny at all on this podcast but 
Oh, like, how dare there are two you? realms about, I know, there are two <laughs> realms about, I also like writing comedy a lot. I like doing that. And so that's sort of like the kind of writing that I like. I also do like regular dramatic writing in terms of plays, but mostly like for, if I'm writing like TV specs or whatever, packets or sketches, they're comedic. And I cannot tell if that's because it's the trope that I fell into because it's like, funny gay Asian men are like there's few of us and that's the thing mm-hmm. you know and I think it is I think I'm sort of in this point now where it's like am I being funny to am I being self-deprecating and funny to make myself fit in like to make myself palatable or is like this am I actually saying something and so that's like been that journey on that writing end and I find it very hard to get into a room because rooms are controlled by white men mm-hmm find it really assistant ships and even to be a writer's assist on a show to be an assist in any shape or form because this is what I'll say as a as an actor I find it a little easier just because I've you know I've really paid my dues there and so in terms of getting mostly for plays in terms of getting into rooms for plays it's not as hard um, if there's an Asian role I can generally get into the room and in terms of reps it's been up and down have had good reps have had not reps have had whatever reps um but i will say for writing what's really hard being an asian queer asian person in this business is that it's so hard to get into the rooms because also if they have one minority one queer person they're not looking for another and i think that the access to the jobs are by white men and white men do not want to help it's too much it's too much to think about hiring or just having a minority come in and help assist. So you're looking out for other minorities to ask you into those rooms. And there's so few in those rooms that to begin with, those rooms are run by white men. And so it's just so hard to get a break to learn because how are you going to be able to write an excellent comedic script if you are not assisting with the best comedy writers? Mm-hmm. So, So that's like, I learned the most as an actor by going to, but by getting into a program that had great actors and working with great actors, but someone along the way gave me the chance to go to the school and then gave, so it's just about someone giving you a chance and it's about the people who control those chances largely are straight white men and they're not evil people saying like, I got to keep the minorities away. It's just that they're not going out of their way to say, you know what, I really want to reach out and give this person a chance. Because even, let's say, the diversity writing fellowships that all these corporations have, there's not that many spots. And Highly competitive, I, so selective, yeah. So selective to a small group of people, and there's more stories than that. I mean, I also don't pursue them, too. The other thing is you're submitting materials that, can be taken from you. Your creative materials can be used. And I find that weird too. It's sort of like, why, there's just gotta be a better way. And I've been thinking about this for people to get to know each other and people looking for jobs. And it cannot be on the, it cannot be solely on the, the minorities in the room to help out other minorities. Yeah. Because minorities aren't running the rooms. Yeah, they don't have the power. And there's also that whole thing where it's like, if you're the only minority in a room, right? Like there's kind of that self-preservation aspect to it. It's like, do you, yeah, yeah, it's like, I want to help my friends, but also I'm the only one here. 
and there's so much pressure that comes with that. Right. It's like, you don't like, fuck up your chance. Like in terms of representation with like uh, agents or managers, it's like the the minority rosters so small. Yeah. And there's not room to, for another one. Yeah. Especially in New York City, their concept of diversity on a roster is very small. And ethnically ambiguous in New York City, especially with um, agencies, is very specific as well. And I think there is room for everybody. And I there think but there, I think the way if I was working on the other side of the business, I'd also say, well, there's just not enough jobs. So not everyone's going to work enough. So I don't want to have an unworking person on my roster. And really, it's sort of like a self-fulfilling thing because it happens, it functions on all ends. If you have more diverse people in a writer's room, there's going to be more diverse roles, which means there'll be more work for diverse actors, which means rosters for diverse actors can grow which will mean that there's going to be a more de more demand for diverse actors to want to go to drama schools which will diversify the drama schools but it takes white people to make that choice yeah and it's hard to look outside of outside of your own experience like yeah. it doesn't matter like i always think about privilege and how like so many of us experience privilege in very different ways. Like for me, I experience um, a lot of socioeconomic privilege uh, and I'm like very, very aware of how that allows me to move through life, how it allows me to, you know, access certain things, you know, I mean like easiest, easiest example, I could totally do an unpaid internship, you know, at like the right, right. Right. And like, I wouldn't have to worry about, how I would live in LA and like all of that stuff. I can just focus on this internship. And, you know, like kind of in thinking about that, even in my own, as much as I try so hard to kind of think outside of my experience, it's still so hard to just be like, oh, my privilege is allowing me to do these things or access these spaces. Another person is not going to, you know, who doesn't have the same experience, you know, won't access these spaces. What I know is like on paper is that like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy do go out of their way and Ava DuVernay go out of their way to hire diverse hires. What Absolutely. I would love to see is where are the white men show, straight white men showrunners that are doing that. I would, so when you were talking about that, I don't know if you watched The Good Fight, which is the best television oh, show yes. ever. It's, yeah. it's few and far between, yeah. The, yeah, but I was thinking about that because ahead of their premiere this week, they did like a New York Times live stream roundtable with like Kush Jumbo, uh, Audra yeah. McDonald, and Christine Baranski, and Michelle King. Um, and they were all talking about like representation. And the part that I tuned in on um, was all of them, Kush got like super emotional talking about how their room is very diverse and how... It just basically exactly what you said, like the diverse diversity in this room, the diversity of experiences and voices in this room help attribute to this really like diverse and wonderful show that's able to tackle like all of these very prescient issues, but from so many different perspectives that doesn't feel like it's, um, you know, like this pedantic, like this yeah, is- It's my favorite show on TV. Yeah, it's incredible. Everybody should yeah. watch The Good Fight. It premiered last night. It the third season. So good. Yeah, it was so good. I watched it yesterday, and I it was so tell. good. Um, 
I'm pretty yeah. sure I took screenshots of everyone's outfits because I just want to be friends with that wardrobe department. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in, it's incredible, and I think that's like that's what we're striving for. But you know, I would like to. I'd like that. I'd like to be there. There should be Asian representation. Yeah. And queer Asian representation in the same way, and we'll get there. We'll get there. It just takes time, patience. Right. So what yeah. made you, what, what kind of like tipped you over into the, the heathen, heathen world of entertainment folks? Like what, what like brought you into wanting to be, pursue acting and writing and all of that? Um, that I, I just, there's this thing about being on stage and performing that I just it was this thing like this writing thing it just there, there's just when I write and when I perform I just it's the ceiling I can't describe it sounds so stupid it also sounds like I'm I'm speaking like I'm some very successful person in the actor studio but um and I'm not but what I'll say is that it's this what I said to my parents the other night because I was like you know it sort of sucks because now I'm sort of so in it and done it for long enough and gone to school long enough that it's like well I can't quit it because I don't think I can find that kind of joy elsewhere. And then rather than being like, whoa, is me, it's sort of like, man, I actually was thinking about other people who don't do this, that I like tend some know, like acquaintances or some friends. And I'm like, I don't know if they know that kind of electricity mm -hmm. that, you, that one feels when they do it. And that's why it's just, it's like a drug. It's this terrible thing because you can't stop doing it. Yeah. You can't you can't, I can't not do it, I would be unhappy. <laughs> so it was like, it was like, um, I think, I can't recall a memory. I think, I think I liked being funny as a kid and I liked controlling that I could make people laugh. And that really got, and I made my, I put on plays in my like uh, living room. That's amazing. That really just started it, just started it for me. Did you ever uh, find yourself using like that humor, like being the the quote unquote clown, um, as kind of like a defense mechanism for oh, yeah. your awareness? Yeah, all the time. It was me. It makes me people in the room comfortable with me, um, yeah. which is an interesting thing now because I find I'm sort of in this like in between space code shifting in my career and that like I don't really get called in for funny things I get called in for a lot of like very mask roles um and so it's like in the room how do I present like as charming and kind and funny and it's sort of like I, the inner clown in me doesn't get to come out <laughs> so it's sort of yes it's existing in this weird space of like in my personal life I do the clown thing and then professionally, it's like, I ha I'm presenting as this other thing. Was there ever like one, um, like representation, like that growing, the, the English on that sentence was not so great. Um, but growing up, like, w was there one, you know, like character, movie or TV show that like, for you really connected to your identity and like kind of spurred you in one, you know, just kind of helped you. No. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I think like comedically, no, I think I sort of just sort of 
picked it up by like it's like a sort of it's code shifting it's sort of like being that's what you get from being a mix of different things and different ethnic groups and you just sort of like pick out comedically like I'm like I joke that like my brand is chaos because like I think I'm chaotic I just think like everything's funny and and dramatically is like it's I think everything I it so no long story short is no I think character wise I guess like that's why I started liking Sandra was in high school I saw her on Grey's Anatomy not high school it's like a senior I think but um and I was like oh like that's something that I like the way she's performing this guy it's something moved me about it yeah and that's when I became a stan (laughs) amazing a standra oh it's like the fans like I I kid you not there's a monologue she did in it and I don't know why I did this when I was like in my early 20s I thought it'd be a good idea to use that as an audition monologue which monologue was it? The one from like one of the episodes where she's like talking about how she performed the surgeries or something. I've used multiple to be honest. I like did one where she's like talking to the chief and I like rewrote it and then I changed the names. It's so embarrassing in retrospect, but man. Hey, I mean, it did connect with me. A Shonda Rhimes uh, monologue is always. I listen and. <laughs> I used it, and I don't think I booked a single job from it. But as Marie Kondo would ask, did it spark joy performing it? It did, and that's all that matters. Truly. It really it did. Get a good job is nothing. Does this spark joy? <laughs> I do want to, one day I needed, because, well, the thing is, I don't, I don't really, like, there's not a lot of monologue auditions, and, like, that I do currently so but what I want to do is I should find one like I should go to an open call where it doesn't matter like I should go to an equity like EPA thingy and I should just go and do it for kicks oh I'm gonna do that you inspired some content for me I can yes you should do that I absolutely (laughs) that's what I'm gonna do (laughs) oh yeah I'm gonna also I'll do it for a musical theater audition I'll be like I don't have oh my god yes I have this monologue you have this monologue wow Yes. I should do that. This is going to be a very fun day for me. I am obsessed with this entire idea, especially <laughs> yeah, now I'll that it's going it. a musical bend. Uh, so that's always my jam. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sandra, yeah. Like, I, I always think about that, like, when I'm thinking of, you know, like, it comes back to code switching, where, like, in terms of representation, there's, like, you do this code switching trying to relate to the characters that you're watching who don't fully represent you. Like, I'm trying to think of, I mean, now, because I'm good at finding niche TV shows, I can find, like, people that represent me more fully. Uh, But I think growing up, it was a lot of, like, oh, does this kid play sports? And are they a woman? That's me. But they're most often white. And, and most oh, often they were like, always white. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or like Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls is yeah. the one that I always talk about because it's like I would watch that and I was like, I want to be this. And I tried to like impose that, like the Gilmore Girls thing onto my family. It just like does not work. Because <laughs> yeah. my family, I was like more of a lane, obviously, than like a Rory. And oh, I don't I don't know the show, but um, the I mean, Lane I is the one Asian. Maisel and okay. Same Lane is the person. Asian. Yeah. Okay, great. 
Amy Sh Sherman Palladino with the, the weird hats that she imposes on everyone. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> but I, I always think that's like interesting that like we, we grow, well, it, and it also feeds into like so many different parts of our identities, right? Like, cause when you're a queer person, you're constantly code switching. Um, uh -huh. When you are an ethnic minority, there's, and you were born and raised in the United States, you know, like a kid of immigrants, um, you're code switching to try to fit, fit in. Um, and like, if you're all of those things, right, you're, you're constantly trying to like figure out where you fit. And a friend of mine, Nathan, he kind of likened the Asian American experience as almost being kind of like queer in, a, in and of itself in the amount of times that we're like totally code switching and trying to like balance kind of our, uh, our Asian-ness and our American-ness and like the mix of the two and, and walking oh, yeah. in, in all of those spaces. And it's so fucking yeah. exhausting. That's all that I was going for with that statement. But it's just tiring. Oh, it is. But, you know, it's tiring. It's the way it is. But it doesn't have to be. Like, yeah. I, think, I think largely with larger representation, not to bring events in the entertainment industry, but really, I think the more... It's just representation. It's, 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 that's how you change people. It's by stories. I mean, mm -hmm. if I was getting like want want like about you know why storytelling is important is it's because it changes people's minds. Yeah. Like, you can't argue someone and change. I don't believe anymore that you can really argue with someone and change their opinion. Like, I can't. I can't argue with a Trump supporter to not, not support Trump. If I tell a brilliant story that makes them feel sympathy and compassion for another person, that I can do. And that might change their mind, but not me saying like, you're wrong. And so I think that's why representation matters. You can change minds by it, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's why it's important for there to be multifaceted representations of Asian queer people and Asian people, I think. Asian men need to be sexualized and not sexualized out of like, a need to tokenly like be like oh we have to do this they actually need there needs to be stories about that there needs to be stories where asian women are not fetishized there needs to be complex asian stories from asians from all different kinds of asians and what they look like and that's mm -hmm. the other thing it's like we just decided that asian people look this way mm -hmm. and I, that's part of the problem and representation can fix that i think no i and, and it's like it's so much of like if you see it's easy to intellectualize, uh, you know, like your identity or where you belong in, in society, but it's a totally different thing to actually feel those things and feel seen yeah. and feel like you're, and that's why representation in media and also just like visibility outside of it, just like general visibility is so important because it, sorry, I heard like a weird noise. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it, it helps us feel seen and heard. And, and that kind of attributes to, you know, like if a, you're telling a story on screen, then that implies that that story is valid to be told. And it's like right. a weird thing to like base the validity of an experience on whether it's on a screen or not. But, but at it's the same true. time, it's, yeah, yeah, like, it, you know, like seeing, like I know for me when I was, when I first found The Good Wife, I was like, holy shit, Kalinda Sharma is this South Asian 
queer uh-huh. woman who's just like really kicking ass and every single part of her identity that is othering is not, you know, separating her out further. It's just all incidental to who she is. And like, right. no one cares, you know, like they still love and support her. It's not, a, you know, like a huge distinguishing factor. And right. like, that's so important. Cause it's like, oh, cool. Like if this person who shares aspects of my identity can exist and thrive, whether it be fictional or not, then that totally means that I can do the same thing too. So representation is so, so important in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really agree. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, here, let's just change the world with this entire, with this, this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what? It's not, yeah. Oh no, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was going to say also it's a universal conversation. I've had this conversation probably with a million people. Well, yeah. One at a time, you know? Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh no, I was going to, I was going to ask what, you know, like how your queerness has impacted your kind of like, um, experience. I think you, you've touched on it a little bit and like how, um, you know, like sometimes mm-hmm. you have to downplay your Asianness in like romantic situations and things like that uh-huh. because of like how oh, shit it is. Yeah. yeah, like in the queer I mean, community. The queer yeah. community is really racist. So uh, racist. Yeah. And yeah, that's about it for that. I mean, I think um, white gay men are pretty bad and non-inclusive um i think my privilege is that you know i feel relatively accepted by the community and i feel desired by the community sexually but i would say that that's generally not like I would say that the I'm making this sounds the way I'm I'm not being articulate about this what I'm trying to say is that the white gay community is terrible and like the things that's why I hide it is because no one says anything offensive to me they'll say it about other people and that's what like gets me yeah where they they assume that you're like them, and so they're gonna talk shit about. Yeah, something. or they'll assume they don't. They know I'm not white, but I like have exotic features. But you know, I don't look any particular way, and you know, I that that's basically all that really matters to them. And and I, for better or for worse, can sometimes present as mask, and sometimes present as very femme, depending on like how I'm feeling, but it's um so there's no moment where i'm feminized by my asianness but i see them doing that in all other ways but i used to get exoticized not for being a specific race but for being exotic yeah um and especially the way people hit on me like at clubs and bars like berries and different kinds of pickup lines that they'll use yeah the amount of people ask me where i'm from and it's also what people do in the industry too like where are you from um but no, yeah but i think where are you from yeah and i'm like, like albuquerque <laughs> but that's yeah. gonna confuse you because then you're gonna assume that like <laughs> i'm next that's usually what happens and then yeah so i mean i think it's been it's been a journey i think that there's a lot of self-loathing between um people of color that are queer 
there's a lot yeah. of terribleness. And I've experienced racism within the community and it's bad. And I think, I think that's also part of my thing is like, I think the idealized image of a gay man, and I'm speaking about gay men because it's the experience I know, mm -hmm. um, is of like white gay men. Like, and that's, that's a problem. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's, a, and that's, a, that's a problem and it stems in every aspect of it. And, and I, a lot of my white friends are also part of the problem. Have, has your, um, has your queerness impacted your relationship with your, like your ethnic identity at all? Like, like with my family? Yeah, I mean, like, with your family or just, like, in general, like, I know that yeah. I sometimes struggle with that, like, does it exempt me from being, like, Indian or not, and it's a uh -huh. for me, I was just curious, like, how did, how did your queerness come into play with, like, your family, like, your kind of identity in that sense? N not, non-issue, I'm, that's where a privilege of mine is, non-issue, um, for me, and so, I've noticed that queerness and race really just goes hand in hand in within the community itself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've kind of had similar. I've had a similar experience where, like, a non-issue with my family. Yet the most, the most frequent times that I feel this conflict between my queerness and my race is when I'm in queer space. It's like coming from the outside rather than like yeah. an internal conflict. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I just think it's, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done about the, about true inclusion in the queer community, and I just don't think that the guys, I'll talk about the guys, because I think it's mostly just white gay men, they don't want to do the work. Well, they gatekeep everything, like, since the dawn of this, of, uh, like, the gay rights movement, right, it's always been. And yeah, and they're there, they also write over that, like, trans, um, like trans history and then also people of color who really did a lot of the legwork for the gay rights movement yeah. they erased them yeah and and i mean it's hard enough i really i notice with some of my white gay friends they talk about their experience being so hard and they're like you know i come from this southern family I don't know, because he won't listen to this, but I've given away some friends who talk about, like, their families, and he's not alone. There's many gay friends that I, they're white and gay, and they talk about, like, coming from this certain area, and just because, you know, I come from a family that accepted me, I come from certain socioeconomic privilege, um, but that their life was so hard, and that they get to be their true selves, and that how like they've gone through this hardship without ever recognizing what it might be like to have racism thrown against you within the community. Yeah. I think that's, I also, you bring up like a really good kind of like point in that is that kind of this, um, this emphasis, not emphasis, it's like a glamorizing of a tragic coming out story and, and how sometimes um, I have felt that there's an expectancy uh, that 
for my coming out story to be like very dramatic because mm -hmm. of being a person of color. Um, and then almost a disappointment when I'm like, no, my family, I'm grateful for it. Don't get me wrong. But like, my, it was a non-issue with my family. Um, and this weird thing, like you're saying, I've had friends where it's like, I listen to people who have had very difficult times coming out um, and, you know, they're white queer people and it sometimes feels as if they're using that as a reason to uh, ignore or kind of like negate my experiences being a POC. Like the fact exactly. that like, that's 100%. Yeah. and it's like, no, which totally, I mean, like it comes back to representation, right? Because so many of this coming out stories that we see on screen end in tragedy, like until recently, that has been such like a, tr a trope of queer representation. It's like queer people exist in, ma in mass media as like a tragic end. Like you yeah. come out and then you, you die or, you know, something awful happens to you. And, and what they just don't know is that they don't, they don't know what it's like to be rejected before, because in the queer community, you have people saying, and the straight community too, but they don't, no one's like, I don't date white people. That's not like a common thing that you hear. But yeah. like, you're gonna see on any gay hookup app, and this is also why I don't say I'm Asian, and for better or for worse, is a lot of people are like, not into Asians, not into Latinos. It is so not into black men it is so racist yeah and white gays are the ones writing that yeah and they're also they don't no one's writing like not into i'm sure a few people do but no one's like not into white guys or like they're not fetishized either you know yeah. they're not like they're not like only into like twinky like white boy like <laughs> Sure, someone might write that, but like that's something you'll read about Asian people all the time. And I just think that they don't think about it because it doesn't happen to them. What has yeah. happened to them is their family gave them a hard time when they came out, and that was very hard. But you know what? A lot of people of color, I'm my, that's not my story, but a lot of people of color not only have a hard time coming out, but then they also aren't accepted in the white gay community. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah, and that and that chosen family rhetoric that is always thrown around doesn't always apply to a lot of people when you're getting yeah. rejected from that community already. And because I recently just started getting into um, Drag Race, and what I find fascinating about that, especially talking to a lot of white gay men, is Ooh. that is the not knowing the history of drag culture. Yes. Oh my God, I love. And yes. Like, yes. And because I got into Drag Race because I started watching um, Pose and got into like the whole idea of balls and different houses. Mm -hmm. And someone on Drag Race, I remember it was with a bunch of white gays, and someone on the show referenced like, this person's from this kind of house. And they misinterpreted what that meant. And I was like, you just don't know the history of drag, of drag culture. Yeah. And I found that, I was like, but because it, it stemmed from mostly like largely Latin and, well, POC, Latin and Black gay men and trans um, people sort of creating this culture. And I just was like, you, you just like this mainstream white drag race 
culture because all of them are all the all the most famous ones are white people uh yeah i mean like this could be an entire episode on its own but i also have like a lot of feelings about drag race because i think that especially now because it is mainstreamed by virtue of being on vh1 um there is this like consistent like uh perpetuation of you know, femininity. I, I wrote like an essay about this uh, for a uh, grad school admissions thing, but I was talking about how a lot of people look at RuPaul's Drag Race as being like very groundbreaking in the way that it's challenging gender norms. But at the end of the day, if you look at the most successful queens in like recent seasons, they are all the ones that can pass the most easily as like a a very traditionally feminine woman and like Uh and for me at the end of the day I feel like that is not what drag is like you're saying that's like not inherently what drag is about because if you go it's about because if you go back to the origins it's about the walk it's about the personality it's about it's a it's a it's a feeling I mean someone I'm not I'm like quoting someone but like it's 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 this other it's a creativity it's this you know and you're so right about that about how gender has been affected by it um and then the whole thing about trans people being able to participate not participate you know yeah and and you also really hit on like this thing that i think we've been talking about this whole time um is like the way in which representation still is the most palatable form of that representation because i think that like for rupaul's drag race you know these queens and this queerness is still very palatable in like a a tokenizing fun way and i think uh i went to a show that jinx monsoon did a while ago and she went on this like whole rant about how like yeah queer there's a lot of queer representation right now and it's still putting us in these boxes where we're the clown we're like a token we're somebody who is still very palatable to you know heteronormative society instead of allowing us to be as in you know different as that's as our spectrum allows um yeah and i that's that's so interesting because like it also you you also see it with the viewership of drag race it's like predominantly white folks you know like the discourse is dominated by white folks and you know it's it 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 has this weird feel it's icky feeling when you do understand where you know like drag came from and like who originated this art form and kind of the history have you watched pose um i tried watching the the pilot so I, Uh i i just don't like ryan murphy and oh. I also, bring it up, you're triggering me. <laughs> no, I know, but okay, I really, we can't talk about it because I like Ryan Murphy. Okay. Uh, I, really, I really, I mean, like that being said, that's just like my own thing against Ryan Murphy. But I still like really appreciate everything that Pose is doing in terms of like, you know, adding more depth to drag and like expose, you know, like people, it's like Paris is burning, right? Not many people. Right. Are it's just Paris sort of like burning. no one, it's like everyone who's watching Drag Race, are they watching that show? No, because it's really, it's about the history of it. And that's what drives yeah. me insane about my gay friends is that like, they won't watch Pose or Paris is burning 
yeah, you they will watch every YouTube video about Drag Race. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's so frustrating, and it's again that like kind of the whitewashing of like the role that trans femmes and like people of color have played within the queer community for like ages. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like they also they sacrifice themselves so you could have a bad coming out. Like I want to yeah. say to them, like, and then you're you're still go home to your family on the holidays. Like these people sacrifice their lives, mm-hmm. and that, like to erase their story and their, their sacrifice so that you could even the idea have the idea of coming out and existing in a gay space and watching a gay show is mind boggling. I know that we had our like discourse about drag, but who is your favorite RuPaul's drag queen? Manila. 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 I like mm-hmm. Manila. I think also the reason why I like Manila is Manila's been around. She had the whole period uh the the pad thing from last season, right? There has been so many seasons in the past year. I don't know. So I really only started watching last season too many okay. i watched it when i was a kid on bh1 and not knowing what it was yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like really late at night you not like a what? kid but like a teenager yeah, yeah. manila is my favorite i was trying to see because i remember there's this whole thing where they had i'm looking at her instagram right now but they had this thing last season where one of her outfits was she was wearing like a blood-stained uh pad like oh. that was her look um but then like rue was like no i'm triggered by that and so she couldn't wear it then she posted it and oh well um if it's not her then i'm being i don't know what it yeah manila it's probably manila Yeah. yeah it was this i don't know if you can see it if you can oh Hmm. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, drag is interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> um, well, so at the end of every episode, I'm just saying uh-huh. this is the end. <laughs> Get okay. off of my podcast. Um, but at the end, uh, the one thing that I always like to ask my guests is like, who is a, um, a Bayesian of the week for you? So that's like, any Asian person that is like inspiring you, like you're crushing on Facebook stalking, can be like your mom or your like, dad. So it can't be Sandra O. Oh. I mean, like it can be Sandra O's Bayesian of infinity. She, I mean, I if it would be it would be off it would be off brand if I did not love her. But I've been really into Gemma Chan recently. Oh my gosh, have you seen Captain Marvel? No, but. This is the thing. I was a Gemma Chan fan when she was in that Sherlock episode. She's in the one with the teapots. The she like water. England Sherlock, not yeah. the, okay. Not the movie. Like the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Wait, she's she in was one in of the very. Oh yeah, she is. She is a guest star, and she's in one episode, and she's amazing in it. And I liked her from then. And I'm really into her. I haven't seen Captain Marvel. I need to go see it. But um, she might be, I think she'd be it. And also Daniel K. Isaac, who um, I follow on Instagram, and he's in the other two. And I don't know him at all. So I hope he doesn't listen to this. 
Um, well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast and yeah, thank you. All the work that you're doing to just like make the representation happen oh. and be better. Yes. And try. also Ryan Murphy. Check in with me in a year, see what happens. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna have to cut yeah, yeah, Ryan. <laughs> Hey, right. <laughs> so what I'll do is I won't talk to you for another year and then in a year yeah um, and then check in in a year and be like how March are we going 15. hey I yeah. know it's been a year but we agreed on this where are we in the representation thing <laughs> how's, yeah, how's your career heard? doing yeah <laughs> how's your career doing um a great but, test for me yeah I, I think so um but thank you so much for doing this this is a ton of fun of course and no it's super fun and I'm looking forward to all of the things that you have in store and just doing more stuff with you with the Gation Project. Yeah, I love a podcast. I'll talk anytime. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks so much. Um, okay. I don't know how to say bye. I'm like so bad at ending these things. Are we still recording? We're still Am recording. I still? Okay. I can, I can stop it. I'll stop recording. Uh, okay. I'm bye for the podcast. <laughs>